0: Okay. Well, same situation as last week, right? Mm-hmm. Snows in the same spot on the map, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have class. Okay. So let's go ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer here. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, we ask that you strengthen our minds now. Give us. Uh, good focus and, and understanding as we uh, probe into this material, so we can better understand ourselves uh, in relationship to you. Even tonight, as we speak about the fact that we are patterned after you, Lord, we ask that we would find uh, ourselves patterned not only in terms of capacities and functions, uh, but also in terms of our uh, of our of our ethical and and moral godliness. In your name, we pray. Amen. Okay. And I've got some famous tricky questions here that I'm famous for. So, animals have souls? (laughs) False. I've got some truths and I've got some false. So, the word that's often translated soul in the Old Testament, nephesh, probably better translated a living thing. Uh, is sometimes applied to animals, uh, but don't imagine by your answer if you put true uh, that ye, that that animals have an immaterial on par with the human immaterial. So, so I, I can probably live with a, a true or a false on that one, but uh, hopefully you understood uh, what you were writing and, and at least struggled with the answer before you threw it in. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. When I say there's no immaterial, what I mean is that once that animal dies, no immaterial portion of him lives on, or it, perhaps I should say. Um, so, in that sense, no, an animal doesn't have a soul that is something that continues to live on after the body dies. But there is a sense in which they are called. Nefeshim, so they are they are called living things. Sometimes translated souls. Plants, though, are not so. Okay. So when a person gets saved, he receives a new soul. False. What does he get? In nature. Okay, he gets a new nature, he becomes a new man even, if we use the language of Paul here, he becomes a new man, but the whole point is not that his his immaterial is replaced with a new immaterial, but rather the immaterial that he has, has its dominant inclinations, its dominant affections, now Godward, uh, rather than towards sin itself, Okay. Which of the following was described in the notes as the biblical explanation for the propagation of human souls? See, So what does that mean, traducian? Everything is transferred. right. So in the personality and- Right. So when mom and dad come together, they not only produce a body, they also produce a new person, a new a new immaterial. So and that's that's what traducian uh, means. Creationist would imply that God creates the person somewhere else and imports them on the, uh, on the, on the material portion produced by mom and dad. Uh, but we run into some, a number of problems, uh, specifically uh, the uh, connection of the, the solidarity of the human race, the origin of sin. And then perhaps we also run into trouble when we start talking about the problem of abortion. Uh, because then we're we're sort of thrust in the rest of the world and asking the question, you know, when 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 does God stick the soul onto the body? When does it actually become a person? And so that becomes a, a a an unanswered question if you take the creationist view. So that gives us a hint then on what number the answer to number four is. The beginning of personhood corresponds to the very earliest moment that a baby's heartbeat can be detected. False. Why? Why? Yes. Yeah, so as soon as mom and dad come together, uh, and and there's a fertilized egg or a zygote that is produced. I mean, there's some. If you get if you get a if you get a you know a gynecologist or somebody comes and ask and and you say conception, they might actually legitimately challenge you because that's not a medical term. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the better word would be fertilization, uh, when mom, when the product of mom and the product of dad come together, and a totally new entity uh, is so a new what what's sometimes called a zygote, uh, in which the male and female pronuclei are no longer are no longer discernible, and a single zygote forms. Okay, so fertilization perhaps is the uh, is the better term, uh, but conception is is certainly the uh, the term that's widely used in in uh, in, in uh, Christian circles. Okay, any questions on any of that material there that uh, were left unanswered? Okay, so that's cats don't have souls. What is that cats do not have souls cats yes, do not have souls. If they are, they're entirely fallen, with no hope. Never believe that. Never believe that. Okay, so here we are in our notes. We'll be at the top of page 20. Technically, there's one word here on the bottom of page 19: the image of God. What is meant by this? What is meant by the image of God in man? We'll start by pointing out the five texts. There's five texts, and this is this is the totality of all the texts that speak to the image of God. Uh, there are, as we're going to see, some other texts that talk about the image of Christ to which we are being conformed as believers. I'm going to suggest that that may not be the same thing. Okay? Okay. So what is this image of God? It's referenced five times in the Bible, three times in the book of Genesis, and then twice in the New Testament. We'll look through these and then see what implications we can derive from this. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the first mention, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So lest there be any question here that there be some sort of lesser status afforded to the female, God makes it quite clear here that females are every much in the image of God as males are, so let us make mankind perhaps or humanity in our image. Uh, Apparently, you know, the Old Testament scripture writers weren't woke and they were using man Uh, for mankind, uh, but uh, we'll forgive him, right? Already under inspiration, after all. Okay? Uh, Genesis 5, 1, and 3. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, and Adam lived 130 years, and he became the father of a son in his own image, in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Okay, so we find this comparison made. Adam is made in the image of God. Seth is made in the image of Adam. So we get a little bit of a, of a, of a sense here. We're trying to piece together what it means. And you can see that this is derived. Genesis 9.6, here's the uh, uh, passage that occurs immediately after the flood. When God institutes civil government. This collective idea that this idea that mankind collectively governs his own affairs, Uh, God is going to take a step back. He's not going to any longer intrude uh, on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on on mankind's problems and solve them himself like he did with Cain and Abel. Uh, Rather, this is going to be something now that's going to be taken care of collectively by mankind. So whoever sheds man's blood, this is the primary function of government first function of government that's that's listed here Uh, there's others that are listed throughout the uh uh, new testament uh, the old old and new testaments Uh, but this is the primary one this is the first one whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed by man plural his blood shall be shed for the image of god god made man okay so the uh uh, the image of God here, of course, an implication here is that it's retained. We're still the image of God, and for that reason, murder continues to be wrong because we retain this status as image bearers of God. Again, giving us a little bit of a sense as to what the image of God is. We're getting pieces of it as we go, as we go along. And so anyone who is an image bearer cannot be killed, Uh people have a status that is different from the rest of creation. In fact, it's in this very context where God says you can kill and eat other animals, but you can't kill another person. That's, that's, that's off, off, off limits. 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, New Testament reference now to the image of God. A man ought not to have his head covered, since he is, he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. We'll talk about this one, but uh, for now we'll let's, let's let it stand uh, for the words that are there. Mankind is the image and glory of God, and woman is the glory of man, and uh, of course in the context here, uh, Paul is establishing a hierarchy of authority in two places, the, the home and the church okay James 3 9 then the fifth and final uh, reference here to the image of God with the tongue in context we bless our Lord and our Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God my brothers these things ought not be he goes on to say okay. so uh, we should not be blessing God and cursing the image of God with the self same tongue—that's uh, that's that's, that's, uh, that's a paradox. Okay. Then we also have these four references as well to the image of Christ, which I'm going to suggest as we work our way through here does not share synonymy with the image of God, but uh, more on that in a little bit. So, what is this image of God? Well, I'm trying to take what we have, and there's not a lot five passages to talk about the image of God. Let's see if we can't piece it together. I say here that the image of God consists of mankind's personal and functional resemblance to God. Personal and functional resemblance to God. Roman Catholic dogma distinguishes between the terms image and likeness in Genesis 1.26, and they suggest Uh, That the former, the image of God, consists of the personal, rational, and volitional resemblance of mankind with God, which is retained, and the latter, this likeness of God, is the ethical and moral resemblance which has been lost. So this is that's official, official Roman Catholic position. I say here the position is lexically unsustainable. There really is no way to look at those two words and, and, and draw that, that sharp distinction between them. However, I want to say this. They are right. They, they, they are right in pointing out that there's a theological tension with, with which all theologians need to grapple. Okay, Something of my resemblance to God has been lost in the fall. Something of my resemblance to God, uh, to God has been retained after the fall, and we want to try and piece that together. So, so, so I'm not sure, I, I don't like this whole idea of distinguishing image and likeness as separate entities. Still, the point is well made that there is something retained and something lost, and we want to work our way through and try and figure out what those things are. There's basically four... Views of the image of God that are held by the Orthodox today. There's not, there's not absolute agreement here. But let's see if we can't uh, look at these and see if we can't pull, pull out one that's uh, superior to the others. One, the image of God is essentially contained in the holiness, righteousness, and truth of God, the moral excellencies that are entirely absent in the unregenerate. This is Martin Luther's position. It's also the position of the Reformed, uh, uh, Reformed, Pre- Pre- Reformed, Pre- Free Presbyterian Association, which is headquartered in Grand Rapids. Um, Hoxima not Hokama. In, that's not a misspelling. There, different person, person who wrote your book. Okay, Herman Huxama, um here is a, is a spokesman for that group. Okay, so they would they would say the image of God has been completely lost because we are totally depraved. Okay, that's number one. Second view is that the image of God is essentially contained in mankind's personal and functional capacities, but not his moral excellencies and is retained in its entirety. Okay, both regenerate and unregenerate persons. This is a position uh, held uh, by John Murray, and a fellow by the name of Kilner wrote a book on this. This is also Jonathan Edwards' position. And so he argues the difference between natural ability and moral inability. Uh, so this is a this is a distinction we're going to talk about as we talk about the gravity in the coming weeks here. Uh, what can we say about the freedom of man? Is man free or is man not free? And the answer is yes and no, right. okay? we have volition okay we are we are able to choose freely according to the dominant inclination of our hearts okay so we have what's called natural freedom we you know so when i when i reject god it's not as though god coerces me to i do it freely i freely reject god now i don't i did not freely choose him until god did something to me because if with, without, without God regenerating me, I would not be capable then of choosing him. So I've got natural ability. I choose according to my dominant inclination. But an unregenerate person has no inclination at all towards God and does not choose him. And this is called moral inability. So he's got a moral deficiency. It's not as though something's wrong with his chooser, if I can put it that way. There's something wrong with his nature. It's corrupt. Okay, and so same thing. Then, uh, it, then if we can if we can take it from that microcosm and expand it out, same thing is true in a whole bunch of other areas as well. Okay, so for instance, um, uh, we talk about uh, reading the Bible. Are unbelievers able to read and understand the Bible? Yes. Very good. So I got all yeses. So, what's their problem? Accepting it. Accepting it, welcoming it, submitting to it, correct. Okay? What's the difference? Okay? Well, they are able, they haven't lost their capacity to read. They haven't learned, they haven't lost their capacity to use human language. It's not as though when Adam fell, he he just sort of started jabbering because he can't. Because he couldn't make words anymore. He still has that capacity, that natural capacity to use language is retained. But what is lost? His ability to use that language to embrace and glorify God. Okay? That had to be restored in him uh, before uh, he could be right with God. Okay? So the image of God is wrapped up then in man's functional or personal capacities but not God's moral excellencies. And so this would explain then why the rest of the, the Bible does not seem to qualify the fact that we're still in the image of God. We're still in the image of God, so, uh, so what what was lost? Well, not the image of God, but, at, but instead our, our, our moral natures were corrupted. There are others who argue this is probably the dominant view within evangelicalism, but it's not one I accept. Now, the image of God is twofold, including a formal element, human personality, that is mostly retained, and a material element involving the human perfections that is mostly lost. You can tell right away why I'm not going to like this, because it sort of sounds like People are mostly depraved, but not completely. Carl Henry takes this view, argues that the fall of man is not destructive of the formal image, man's personality, although it involves a distortion, though not demolition, of the material content of the image. Okay, so the material element, the human perfections, are distorted, but not demolished That's the language uh, he uses here. I'm, as you can tell, I'm not really comfortable with that. It seems to me it's better to say that something was entirely lost and something was entirely retained, not something was mostly lost and something was mostly retained. I think that that becomes a problem for us as we work our way through, particularly uh, the doctrine of sin and depravity. Okay? then there's a final view that's sort of a generic view that the image of god is the whole undifferentiated body of resemblance between god and man which is disparately marred but not destroyed so it's the one that doesn't want to parse the the details here it's it's just sort of a statement marred but not destroyed Um, but i think it ultimately is in the same category as c uh, but uh less sophisticated okay so which one's right know, we can see the next page is given over to that. Next two pages, actually. Firstly, first line of argument here is scripture nowhere declares that the image of God has been lost or damaged. Anywhere. There's no hint in any part of the scripture that says that the image of God has been lost or damaged or marred or or you know, any of those other words that were used here. Regenerate and unregenerate persons alike remain in the image of God. This is fairly clear, I think, from Genesis 9. It's not as though God says, well, you can kill unregenerate people because they're not in the image of God anymore. No. <laughs> All persons, regenerate or unregenerate, remain in the image of God and you can't kill them. And He doesn't say in uh, you know, James 3 9. It's okay if you cuss out a, 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 an unregenerate person because they're not in the image of God. That's, that's appropriate. No, no, no. You can't cuss at anybody who's in the image of God, uh, regenerate or unregenerate. There's no hint anywhere in the, in the, in the language here uh, that the image of God has been lost. There's no, there's no exegetical indication. Now, I do concede. As I mentioned earlier, that there are certain passages that speak to the image of Christ. We are being renewed in the image of him with whom we are united, Jesus Christ, which seems then to consist primarily of moral perfections. It's a description of sanctification. We're becoming like Christ. In fact, that's a term we often use, Christ-like. We're growing in Christ-likeness. That's what sanctification is. We're becoming like Christ. Um, but that's a little bit different here than than the image of God. I think we have a technical phrase, the image of God, and our becoming like Christ uh, is not the same thing. Okay? It's not clear then that the image equate the image of Christ equates with the image of God that Adam received at creation. Instead, it seems to reflect the state of confirmed holiness that would have been Adam's had he obeyed. So, if Adam had obeyed, had been confirmed in holiness, then he would have become like Christ, uh, excelling in all of the moral perfections that Jesus has now. Okay, uh, and it would it would seem then that when we are glorified, wholly sanctified, uh, then we we uh, partake then of the image of Christ at glorification. Okay, And so we're not talking here about the image of God, but rather the image of Christ, the Christ-likeness, where we are tr- starting to resemble Christ in a moral and ethical sense. What this means, then, is that the image of God does not include all possible points of resemblance between God and man, but only the functions and capacities of personality that man receives at creation and retains even in his unconverted state. We could list some of those. Uh, we do this in the in the doctrine of of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. We talk about the the functions of personality, um, and we say these are the things that create the the image of God, the resemblance of persons with God. We we have a list of. Nine things, uh, I, b- I believe, or if my list was correct. Okay, so we've got a linguistic resemblance. For instance, we've got a religious resemblance here. We have a, you know, we, we have capacity for worship. We have a, we have a, uh, we have a volitional resemblance. That is, we are natively choosing beings. Uh, we've got affections, or sometimes even we might call them emotions. Okay, this idea that we have uh, these, these these inclinations toward and aversions away from uh, that which is good, beautiful, true, and so on and so forth down the line. So we've got a number of these personal functions that we share with God, but not necessarily the content. So we have affections, but our affections are are reversed right we have an aversion towards God and an attraction towards sin okay so we have affections we have emotions but they're all twisted up okay so the, the capacity remains but we use it wrongly same thing with our linguistic capacity we have the ability to use language we can still read we can still speak but rather than speaking to God we curse him. okay and so it, it's not that our, the capacity to use language is incorrect, but the content then becomes corrupted. Okay? And again, so forth, all the way down the line. So the capacities or functions of per, all persons uh, render him the image of God. And these are retained even in one's unconverted state. This further relieves them the tensions that are common to both positions C and D above which are sort of lumped together which unnaturally amalgamate all the points of resemblance between God and man and then sort of has to sift through them one by one to determine what is in the image in what's retained and what's lost, what is marred, what is distorted, what is destroyed uh, I think it frees us from this, this very difficult process. It's those capacities and functions of personality that are retained The perfections are lost. Okay? So that leaves us then with option B the idea that the image of God is contained strictly in the functions and capacities that are intrinsic to persons, but not the perfections demanded of those who possess those functions. Note the following here. So if you have us, we've tried to tease this out, but here's a little bit, a couple of more examples if this helps you. Okay? All persons have a rational capacity. All persons can think. But the perfection is lost. That is accepting the eminently reasonable biblical worldview. Okay? So an unbeliever retains the capacity to reason, but reasons to the wrong conclusions, not because he's unable to think, but because he is unwilling to accept the conclusions of his own thought, okay, and so he, you know, as the uh, as the as the man in, in in Psalm fourteen says, you know, the the, the fool has said it in his heart, "No God for me." He's not coming to the conclusion. If, if I read Romans one correctly, that God doesn't exist. In fact, Romans one tells us that all people. God exists but what, what, what happens? We exchange the truth for a lie, we worship and serve the created things rather than the creator even though we retained God in our knowledge we did not acknowledge him as God or give thanks but became mm-hmm. vile in our affections and so on and so forth so all persons retain the capacity to think, the capacity to reason But they cannot even accept that right reasoning that they make. Mankind retains a volitional capacity, this this natural capacity to choose according to the dominant inclination of the nature. But the perfection is lost. Unbelievers do not choose what is good and beautiful and true. They choose the opposites linguistic capacity is retained. But we can't submit to the Bible's plain meaning. You know, it, It's not as though people don't know what it means when it says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. But they look at those words and say, no, not for me. I know what it means, but I'm not going to submit to those words. Okay, And so he... Mankind retains this linguistic capacity, but refuses to submit to what he knows to be true. And then uh, religious capacities I have down here. Okay, Mankind continues to be a worshipping being. All, all persons worship something. Now some claim not to, but usually what that means is that they've pretty much gone all the way and started worshipping themselves. Uh, rather than God, okay, so they still worship, they worship the wrong thing, they worship and serve the creature, rather than the creator, okay, so so I think this gives us sort of a sense of what we mean here, when we talk about the image of God, the image of God is the capacity, these things are retained, which is why we can't curse, people who are made in the image of God. We can't kill people who are made in the image of God. And we have to recognize that there is a hierarchy in our civil structures because man is made in the image of God. And those things are, are continue to be true. But the perfections are lost, and lost thoroughly. Thoroughly. So as Edwards masterfully demonstrates in his discussion of freedom of the will... His, this approach is helpful in resolving all of the tensions here uh, that, we, that we come to in this, in, this, in this matter. It explains how mankind may be treated in scripture as simultaneously having freedom, the capacity to choose, and at the same time describe him as incapable of choosing God. Every man, regenerate, unregenerate, freely chooses according to the dominant impulse of his nature, but inability does not imply the absence of natural freedom, all persons have natural freedom, but rather the presence of a corrupt nature. So again, what is broken in an an unbeliever is not his chooser, still makes choices, still makes determinations. That's not broken. It's the image of God. It's not broken. But what is broken is the nature that informs the chooser. The nature is broken, completely corrupted. Okay, does that follow? Does that make sense? Okay. Oh, question. Yeah. So you're saying so that's kind of related like to that volitional capacity. So that's why maybe someone that's not a believer, because you know whatever, run a charity, do great things, but and they have the capacity to do good, but not. Right, what you're saying, like not real good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all, I mean, <laughs> genuine good is always not only a, a right action, but also, you know, I to learn it as a kid. obedience right. with a right art attitude, yeah, right? So, yeah, sure. So, uh, so an unbeliever may do good things, or true, say true things, or create beautiful things, um, but it's tainted by the fact that his motivations are are uh, skewed. So. But do but do you think that do you think that the inclination to desire to do something good that is a, is a, is a result of that nature that's in them that's maybe perfected? yeah I, I think I think perhaps of what what did Isaiah sixty four six all their righteousnesses which are righteousnesses yeah. are as filthy rags yeah. so they're non meritorious even yeah. though externally they're doing something I, had, I used yeah. to have this neighbor that he was a, he was. A, Russian Orthodox, and he was trying to get himself into heaven, and he was in his 80s, and he knew that he was not there yet. You know, <laughs> yeah, in his yeah. theology. Yeah. And so, and every time it snowed, he got up before I did. He always beat me up. Beat beat me up, up, but beat me up in the morning. So, and and he would he would get he would out and and my walk was cleared every single day because he knew I was a I was a man of God. And so if if he was going to shovel my walk, he was going to get like double points for that. So, and you say you know that was righteous of him. We might even say that that's righteous of you. But what we're saying is it was. It did conform, at least externally, to the expectations that God has to be kind to your neighbor. Right. At the same time, it's not meritorious because He's doing it to earn His spot. Yeah, self-serving. Right. So all of His righteousnesses, which were righteousnesses, are as filthy rags. So, so yes, it did, in some sense, correspond to what God's expectation was, but for the wrong reason. And and and. And sometimes I don't even. Sometimes I don't know what the bad reason is why people do something that is externally good, but I think I can say confidently that it wasn't the right reason. It wasn't done for the glory of God. Well, that's the rub, right? Until it's perfected, right. And then, right? You know, you're coming to draw walls. You know what I'm saying? Like, right? Know. Yeah, even as something as simple as eating and drinking, right? You say eating and drinking—that's yeah. neutral, right? No because what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The implication? Some people eat and drink not to the glory of God. And so, so there, there are things that people do that externally conform to the expectations that God has, but never internally. No, yeah, makes. I was was just thinking about. I was just thinking through that as you were talking. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think this explanation further explains how God can justly condemn a person who is incapable of exercising faith. This is this is oftentimes something that's raised. You know, okay, if, if a person is incapable of pleasing God, how can God send that person? To hell. Just doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. But the ethical basis of every sinner's just condemnation is not his failure to do what he cannot do per se, but his willing participation in what he should not do and what he knows that he should not do. Okay? So the condemnation of the unjust man is based on the fact that he willingly and aggressively pursued things that were evil, that he knows were evil, and according to Romans one thirty two, knows will result in judgment. That is the basis of judgment. Willingly doing something that is wrong. Now you say, okay, but he couldn't do what was right, but that's incidental. Because he willingly did what was wrong. Okay, and that is the And that is the the the, the damning factor here uh, in his actions. Okay. Related. See if this makes sense here. It offers a rationale for apologetics when we speak to those described in Scripture as dead. Okay. Right. You say how 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 are we going to give the gospel to someone who's dead? Dead people can't hear dead people can't respond. So this is an exercise in futility if I give this person the gospel. Why should I do this? Okay? Well, I'll read on. We're not speaking, when we talk to dead people, people dead in their sins, we're not speaking to brick walls that have no capacity to understand the Christian message or even to feel the objective weight of the Bible. Because of the divine image, the plain gospel is understandable. It's convincing, even to the simplest of mind. It's, it's, it's not complicated, right? As such, the gospel needs only to be proclaimed without you know, accumulating all kinds of evidences that the Bible's true or clever gimmicks that will make people just sort of rush to grab it because it's, it seems cool. What the unregenerate need is not more data or better proofs to overcome a sluggish mind, they need the impartation of a new nature to overcome a hostile mind. Okay, so what's the task in apologetics, and sharing the gospel? You put the words of God in front of them that are able to save their souls, and you pray like you never did before that God would, in fact, impart to that person a new nature so that he will respond favorably to uh, to them. And 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 we know that regeneration is always. Uh, is always granted is also always bestowed in the context of the gospel preached or taught okay does that follow I think it also gives us a sense of understanding hermeneutics he learned about hermeneutics right when you came here to church bible study methods probably they called it back then but now you know that's what hermeneutics is this approach to the image of god explains the tension of meaning and significance because the linguistic capacity native to divine image bearers remains intact even in the foulest of sinners even even the worst sinner can read he can read the bible and perfectly grasp its meaning in fact i mean history tells us that they sometimes know what the Bible means better than we do. I mean, I've got, I've got commentaries on my shelves back in Helen Park that are written by unbelievers. They don't believe what the Bible says, but they're really good linguists, very careful students of human language. And they and they've probed through the details of the Greek and the Hebrew and said, this is what this means. I don't believe it but this is what it means this is what they said in fact sometimes it's valuable to us uh, to, to to see that because they're, they they don't have a dog in the fight you know they they're, they're not, it's you know sometimes there's a debate you know is this a dispensational reading or is this a reformed reading and which which one is it here well here's somebody who says i don't really have a dog in the fight i don't i'm not a dispensationalist or reformed i don't even believe what the bible says but i can look at the words and say this is what it means and, and sometimes you can get, get a very objective reading from someone like that because he doesn't have a dog in the fights that some of the other commentators have. So sometimes it's very valuable to read commentaries that are written by someone who is an unbeliever because they retain the image of God. They can still read. They can still understand Greek and Hebrew and English and express that very well. So what the unregenerate man needs is not greater linguistic capacity. He doesn't know how to read. He doesn't need to know how to read better. The image of God gives us all that we need. He doesn't need a deeper understanding of its words. He needs a new heart that welcomes it. There's the words you use there. To welcome, to embrace, to submit to the simple truths of Scripture and all of those in their significance. So, So that's what is meant by the image of God. Does does that follow? Does that make sense? It's the personal capacities and functions that all persons have in resemblance to their creator. And I would include here not only um, humans, but potentially angels. We'll we'll actually talk about that in a few seconds here. Uh, But those who are personal beings, their resemblance to God, but not the moral, the, the moral resemblance that we have towards God. Does that follow? Does that make sense? Questions? Thoughts? I know we sort of put our feelers out in a number of different directions here and touched some complicated and debated topics. So, you know, holler out if you didn't get it. Okay? Good. Okay, so the question then: Who is in the image of God? Is it only humans, or are perhaps angels actually? One of your pastoral staff says yes, and one says no. So I I, I don't have to be committal here. <laughs> I won't tell you which ones. <laughs> The descriptive phrase, image of God, is restricted in Scripture to humans. So if you look at the Bible, the Bible never calls angels the image of God. It only ever calls humans the image of God. That doesn't necessarily mean angels are not, but the Bible never says they are. So although angels possess many or even all of the functions of personality possessed by humans, they are never said to be in the image of God. Some suggest that, silence notwithstanding, Angels are, definitionally, in the image of God. Okay? Even, even though the Bible doesn't ever say this, there's no, no reason for us to deny it to them. Others, however, suggest that angels lack certain capacities necessary to being image bearers, such as racial solidarity. Angels don't have racial solidarity. God does. He has a trinitarian solidarity. We as humans have solidarity with one another, and angels don't have that. And corporeality. Okay, so angels don't have bodies. You say, well, wait a minute. God doesn't have a body either. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that problem in just one second here. But th- these are these are two things that angels don't have that humans have. I say the decision's not easily made fortunately the decision is of little theological consequence so I don't actually come to a conclusion on that there because I don't have to and uh, it, uh, I don't have to offend any of your pastors by saying that Okay. <laughs> so a question that we have then is there a physical aspect to the image of God it's been long taught in many the- theologies that the body is part of the image of God which doesn't seem to, on at first blush to make any sense, right? Because God doesn't have a body. So the fact that God is incorporeal, doesn't have a body, has led most theologians to, to dismiss out of hand the suggestion that the body is part of the image of God. Some suggest that the human body was designed after God's blueprint for the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, So God had Christ in mind, and he made us to resemble him, but... Philippians 2 actually seems to say the opposite, right? In the Incarnation, Christ was made in the likeness of man. Man was never said to be made in the likeness of Christ. Nonetheless... Since it's the functionality of man that comprises the image and not his material or immaterial substance, several theologians maintain that the body is part of the image of God. Why? Well, to exclude the body from the image of God, these say, is to relegate the body to a position of unimportance and even contempt. My conclusion that it is better, probably best, to see the body as necessary... To our reflection of the divine capacities in a material world. Okay, so in order for us to express, uh, you know, volition, to express worship, uh, to ex- you know, a- a- any of the functions of-, of personality, in order to express them in a material world, we need bodies to do that. Okay, so in that sort of backhanded way the body then becomes necessary uh, to the divine image, at least in a material world. It may also explain, in part, why God hates graven images so much. Graven images have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. And so on and so, so forth. Psalm 115 goes through this. In short, they are terrible representations of God. They kind of look like they might do God kinds of things, but they can't because they're made out of rocks, trees, and such. But man, who is the image of God, can do all of these things. And so the reason, it would seem, that there can be no graven image is because there is nothing that can come even close to representing God like we already do. Okay, And so God is... God God is upset with the idea of graven images because they can never represent God well at all. They do a far worse job than any one of us would do to represent God. We you, you do a better job of of representing God to a watching world than any graven image possibly could. Okay, now you don't do it perfectly. Don't want to get you Elevated too high here. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, you do better than any rock ever could, or any tree, or any carved image, and that's why I think God is so upset with the idea of bringing images because they they cannot do God justice in any sense. Okay, so to conclude, even though man does not share a body with God, a physical body is necessary for us to successfully represent God in a material world. And so that's sort of my in-between position on uh, on whether the body is part of the image of God. It's necessary for us to adequately reflect God in a material world. Okay. Thoughts on that? Questions on that? Yeah. yeah I'm just wondering, there's all kinds of uh, passages talking about people seeing angels right. or how can they not have a body but still be seen by people? Uh, because because they can take on human forms or other forms, uh, but they don't have a necessary human form or necessary physical form. Um, for instance, uh, the, the man, the demoniac, who said he had, he he was possessed by a legion of angels. You say, well, where are where are these? Ten thousand demons that are supposed to be inhabiting this guy. Well, they're invisible. Uh, they they are localized, but they don't take up space. And there's ten thousand of them that are that are in this poor, poor fellow. Okay. And so normally angels have no corporeality. They're normally invisible. Um, and we, we and we, we recognize that. You know, for instance, what is it? Elisha uh, in battle. He, so there's there's no way we're going to win this battle, and so God, what does God do? Well, okay, let me just give you a, a glimpse you ordinarily can't get. Okay, I'll let you see all the angels, and whoosh, it's like, oh wow, we've got a good chance now. <laughs> but ordinarily they're they're invisible. However, it appears that God allows them to take material forms. Sometimes it's an animal, sometimes it's a a, 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 a human like. Uh, being some you know, in the in the book of Revelation, there are these hideous beasts and such. Uh, but uh, apparently, they can temporarily take on these forms, but those aren't those aren't permanent forms. We'll actually get to that at the end of this. End of the you know, our last topic in this class is angels, so we'll talk about that further. Okay. Anything else? Okay. So let's talk then about Adam, okay? This this quintessential man. He's got all this everything going for him, right? And so let's see if we can't describe what his responsibilities were, what he what he is capable of, and then uh, see what happened to him, okay? And that'll sort of merge us into our second part of our class here, and that's the doctrine of sin. So the original state of man, Thomas Boston, we mentioned earlier, first week we were here, has a well-known book on reformed anthropology, which he calls human nature in its fourfold state. So what are the fourfold state? Well, first of all, is primitive integrity. This is his description of Adam before the fall. Entire depravity, uh, which is mankind's condition after the fall recovery begun that is the converted but not yet glorified regenerate person and then the state of consummate happiness or alternately misery that's the final state of mankind either in heaven or in the lake of fire these correspond to Augustine's four states of man relative to sin Okay, so the original man Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. The depraved man is not able not to sin. Everything he does is only evil continuously. The converted or recovering man who is able not to sin. And the glorified man who is unable to sin. And don't we anticipate that, right? So we're looking here first at this original mankind in his original state. He was originally a moral being. He was a morally responsible agent. Uh, Genesis 2.17 indicates here that Adam had an inalienable moral obligation with respect to God, with respect to his wife, with respect to his world, and with respect to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God told him everything he needed to do. He gave him a whole list of things that he needed to do because Adam was able to handle it. Because he was a morally responsible agent he was also we say here a volitionally free agent not only was he free with respect to his nature but he is also free from the debilitating impulses of a sin nature so he doesn't have anything inside of him that's saying like we always do sin, 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 sin so he doesn't have that he's different from us in that sense all impulse to sin was generated from without and was non-constraining and we'll talk about the temptation of Adam it's very interesting how Satan tempts him not by appealing to his baser instincts but rather to his chaste affections to excess Okay, this is good for food good for food and Adam had been created with a capacity for good food. Probably would have would have been a great foodie, right? He knew, he knew what good food was all about. And he looked at that apple and said, that's good food. And it sort of made him forget this fact that he wasn't allowed to eat that particular piece of food. It's desirable to the eyes. It's beautiful. It's a perfect apple. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. If you bite into it, it's going to be that perfect that perfect combination of tartness and sweetness—that's just that makes a good apple. It's beautiful, and it's desirable to make one wise. Okay, I mean that's—that's I mean, that's Adam wasn't made omniscient, right? He didn't know everything, and he was told that if he eats this apple, he's going to know something he doesn't know now, and Satan's right. Yeah. He will know something that he doesn't know now by eating this. And so what Adam succumbs to the temptation, not because of a sin nature that is resident within him, but actually the chaste affections that God has given, these appetites that God has given to him, and Satan exploits these. Because he doesn't, he, there's no sin nature that Satan can work with. Nonetheless, he does fall. So he's a volitionally free agent. Free from the debilitating impulses of a sin nature, all impulse to sin was generated from without and was non constraining. Thirdly, Adam had a provisionally holy nature. He was created very good. Everything up till this point is very good. So there's nothing that's bad at all. And so Adam is in this state of being very good. Now, this does not itself demand a positive inclination to holiness. Much of God's creation has no capacity for being holy. Trees aren't holy or sinful. However, it does demand the absence of all that is not holy. Ecclesiastes 7 says this, God made mankind upright, but man has gone in search of many schemes. The specific term here, yashar, implies that Adam was not merely innocent or neutral, Instead, he was positively upright, in possession of moral rectitude, positively inclined towards holiness. He was fully equipped and inclined to fulfill all of his moral responsibilities. He was in a good situation, which is which is going to be interesting when we see the contrast to Jesus Christ of his temptation. Right? Jesus Christ, in some senses, is like the second is is like the first Adam. He has no. He has no capacity, he has no sin nature that's resident within him. He's been appointed as the second Adam. But when he gets to his temptation, <laughs> he's been 40 days without food. Okay? Adam has everything he wants to eat. He's got everything he needs, he's got it right there. He doesn't need that apple. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He needs bread. And so that's where the temptation comes to him in a more forceful way than it ever came to the first time. Right? The same thing—it's—you know, it, it bow down to me, and all—you know, all—I'll I'll, I'll make sure that the whole, all the nations of the world will bow down to you. You know, it's, you know, this is this is something that's been denied Jesus Christ, and it is his right, right? The world should be bowing down to him. And so he gets to this spot and, you know, Satan says, I can get everybody to bow down to you. And, you know, inside of Jesus is, it yeah, and, and, and they ought to be. But he knows that what he has to do to get it is not in keeping with the expectation that God has for him. It would actually blow the whole system. Okay, so, so we've got the same same kind of temptations that come to Jesus as had came to Adam. Only Jesus faces a great You know, a much stiffer uh, 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 inhibitions here uh, that make him want to sin, make him inclined uh, in terms of his appetites uh, towards these sins. Adam didn't have any of these sins. He was actually positively inclined towards holiness. He had everything going for him. But he had an untested moral character. So he's inclined towards holiness, but his character had not yet been tested. We mentioned above the image of God in Adam did not include the moral perfections found in Christ or possessed by those in the glorified state. These perfections made were made available, oh, Well, were made or backwards here. These perfections were made available to Adam but could only be his through the confirmation of his holiness through faithful obedience. So the expectation was that had had Adam, the first Adam, passed the test, he would have been confirmed in holiness and effectively would have been the savior of the world. Because all all those who would have come after him would have been in his image in every sense. So even though Adam's nature was provisionally holy, even inclined towards further holiness, He was in a state of unconfirmed creaturely holiness. This is a phrase you see in a lot of textbooks. He did not yet have holy character. That is the acquired tendency to do right in the face of moral options. You know that's what that's what we mean when we talk about that, that guy has character. He's been tested and he's come through those tests squeaky clean. That guy has character, and that's what we would mean. That that's what. Adam didn't have yet. He didn't have character. Character is born in experience, not in nature. And Adam was created without any experiences. And so he had to create his own experiences and he did so poorly. Okay? And here's a question I've basically already asked and answered. If Adam and Eve were inclined towards righteousness, why did they sin? Well, because of these chaste appetites that God has given to them uh, Satan exploits them. So we already talked about that, forgotten that box was there. So we'll skip that. Question two, at what point could Adam have been confirmed in holiness? What, what, how much holiness would he have had to have under his belt before he would have had, you know, holy character? Well, we don't know. Scripture doesn't provide an answer to the question. However, there's a couple of clues along the way. The length of the angelic test... And Christ's temptation may speak to this question. That is, it wouldn't have had; it wouldn't necessarily taken very long. Okay, the angels that sinned sinned fairly quickly, and we, we assume then that the uh, the elect angels were confirmed in holiness rather quickly as well, just as Jesus Christ was in the, uh, in, the in his temptation it didn't take a, it didn't take a long time, uh, but it would have taken some experience. Practically, it seems that this test of necessity also had to have been complete before Adam and Eve conceived a child. Okay, so I would say I'm thinking probably in terms of of days or weeks uh, that that would have been confirmed one way or the other. Because if Adam and Eve had produced a child while in their perfected state. That child would not have been a depraved child. It would have been a holy child, and we know Cain was not that, right? And so, uh, we 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 would suggest then that uh, this would have happened fairly quickly, probably in a matter of weeks, uh, but not not for very long. Although uh, scripture doesn't actually say, it, but just deduce that from what we from what we know. Okay. Questions? Thoughts on that? quiet bunch okay so what was Adam like he was the smartest man that ever lived <laughs> he was I mean he, uh, I mean, uh, we have to get out of our head this idea that we are evolving into something better we're actually de-evolving from something that was grand into something that is much worse so by all counts, Adam was the smartest guy that ever lived he had an uninhibited intellect, he was unrestrained by the debilitating effects of sin. Adam's intellect was such that in a single day, before Eve came along, he was able to observe the distinguishing features of thousands of animals, assign them names based on those features, and apparently was able to remember them all. All those names, all those characteristics, without any sort of external memory aid. He didn't have a computer, he didn't even have a notebook to write all this down. Okay? He was, he was he was bright he was smart he had a native linguistic capacity God made him a speaking creature uh, from day one God spoke to Adam okay again you know, there's one this perhaps is a little bit of a heavy concept here uh, but the the idea of the received laws of language is a very important one. It's not as though, you know, again, the, the, the picture, you know, the caveman, the dumb caveman, who, who, who at best he can do is, no, that never existed. Man was, first man was very capable of speaking. In fact, that seems to be the very reason God gives us language, so that he can speak with us, so that we can speak to him. Okay? It's not something that we invented. We talk about human language, but there's a sense in which it's not really human language. It's something that God gave to us. It was a gift. The, the linguistic capacity was something that God granted to us, and we had from day one. Now, we've taken it and run with it. We've, In some ways, we've improved it. In some ways, we've you know, disimproved it, right? Right? Uh, and you know we've we've and then of course there's that incident there at Babel where God sort of created a whole bunch of other languages along the way. And so so you know it it those those languages once given to us are subject to evolution um, in a, in the in the most general of senses, right? Our language evolves. Words don't mean exactly the same thing today as they did 40 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, but we were, we were created, mankind was created with a, with a well-developed linguistic capacity. He was able to speak speak plainly and clearly. He was able to understand God, and God was able to understand him. And that's the whole reason that language exists. Uh, so when you hear someone say, you know, these, these words in the Bible, they, they can't capture what God is like. Well, you know, that's the, you're actually sort of insulting God with that. God made these words as the best way to know him. (laughs) And that's why he designed them. That's why he designed human language and words, so that we could understand him, that we could speak with him, and so that he could communicate with us and give us the word. So mankind had native linguistic capacities. God talked with Adam. Adam gave names to the animals and to his wife. In fact, right, there's, a, there's a question as to what, what language was he speaking. Um, the, the fact that his name is Ish, man, and his wife's na- and he calls his wife Isha, uh, which is feminine man, you know. So this is basically the idea of uh, the, uh, uh, the female man uh, is, an, is an Isha. Some have some suggested that perhaps Hebrew was the original language. I'm not sure we can, we can sustain that, but perhaps... Man also had creative and deductive abilities. Adam deduced that he was alone; he had no mate. He cultivated the garden immediately, deducing the needs of the plants and inventing tools immediately, so that he could meet those needs. I just read today an article (laughs) just popped into my head Uh, that uh, the Babylonians were using trigonometry 3,700 years. BC 3700 BC 1500 years before Pythagoras uh, they were using a base sixty trigonometry uh, that is actually much more efficient than Pythagorean trigonometry I mean, these, these were these were smart dudes these are really smart people the, the early mankind uh, you know we, we <laughs> again that, that, that question that often comes up how is it possible that they built these pyramids they must have been the aliens or something because People were dumb back then. No. <laughs> There's a really easy answer for those things. No. People were really, really smart back then. And that's why they were able to do those things that we sort of marvel at today. Because we're, by comparison to those early people, uh, rather deficient. Okay. So Adam was really smart. He was a really intelligent fellow. Okay. Next week we'll go ahead and start in here on his relationship to the rest of the universe, the dominion mandate, which I think is very important because I think it is still in effect today and there are implications for all of us as we try to be the best men and women that God intended us to be. Okay.